you have a Bible with you, please turn to page one. I don't think there's any question about where this will be in anyone's Bible. The book of Genesis, the first two verses. God tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, and uh, if you're second grade or younger, we do have children's church assembling in the back. You will be digging deeper into our catechism question. If you're second grade or older, or if your parents uh, have elected to keep you in the service, we also have sermon challenges in the back. It's a brand new, fresh start. So uh, if you kids were a little jealous of the prize winners last, uh, last uh, month, we're going to have a whole new uh, competition starting now. So get those sermon challenges and, and uh, please participate. All right, well, it's 2019, new year. Time for a new series, and we are going to be spending the next, well, many weeks in the book of Genesis. We are going to focus on chapters 1 through 3, Genesis 1 through 3, in a series that I have called The Reason Why. And the reason why is because in Genesis 1 through 3, you learn the reason why for pretty much everything that really matters in this world that we live in today. Both the good and the bad, we find the reason why in what is told to us in Genesis 1 through 3. So it's a pretty important uh, section of Scripture that I hope that you will be tuned into. I hope that you'll take an opportunity to invite your friends because I think we will be engaging questions that will be very relevant, that will really hit the road for your neighbors and your friends. And so I hope that you'll take the opportunity to say, hey, come and participate. So we are going to be preaching through uh, the text, Genesis 1 through 3. And I shared with some of my pastor friends that I'm, I'm starting Genesis. And they, they looked at me and they said, well, do you know what you're getting into? And I looked at them with great confidence and I said, No. No, I, I am sure that uh, you are aware that just as Genesis 1 through 3 answers the question, the reason why, for many important subjects, it also, for a lot of people, contains a lot of very challenging, confusing questions that you perhaps uh, would like to know the answer to. How do we, how do we make sense of science and, and, uh, and the, the, the word of Scripture what do we, what do, we uh, do about words uh, about uh, the origins of, of evolution and all these other topics, the, the age of the earth and, and uh, questions like that? And if you've been ravaged with those sorts of questions, uh, we are going to approach those questions. We're not going to dodge those questions, but we're going to deal with them in, I believe, a context that is a much better place than the pulpit. Our Wednesday night series, starting January 16th, is going to be taking up those questions in Genesis about the time and about science and about things like that. And so I hope that you will mark your calendars for our Wednesday night series. Show up at, uh, we'll deal with that in a little bit, but just deal with January 16th. Put that on your calendar, 
and uh, plan to come, and we're going to deal with how do we deal with these uh, questions that come to us from Genesis as modern readers. So I hope that uh, you'll get to participate in both. All right, now let's actually deal with what we're going to talk about today. Have you ever dealt with this question? Uh, Where's my place? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? How do I know that I am where I am supposed to be? Uh, Do you go into the office and have just a very secure feeling? I am here. I am where I'm supposed to be. I am secure. Or do you look at that new hire and say, that person's going to replace me? Do you, uh, do you feel like you know who you are in your family? Perhaps you're, you're growing up, you're going into new stages, your parents are getting older, you're, uh, you're growing out of, of the household. Do you, do you feel like, what's my place in this family or in the home? What's my place in the home? What are, what are my responsibilities? What am I supposed to be doing? Have you ever asked that about a relationship? I mean, where, where, where am I with you? right now? Where where do I belong? Do I fit? Is this relationship strong? Be more globally, where's my place in the world? Who am I in this vast world? I I believe that probably most of us are are in a process of trying to find our place. We are either uh, actively trying to find it by asking questions, you know, who am I? We're actively aspiring for some place in this world, the the right job, the right home, the right family. We're working at securing our place. Because as soon as we think we have it, something starts to change to take it away. So we we work at securing it, at strengthening it, at, at establishing it. Some of us are just in the place of defending our place. You know, that job that, that you think is so secure is suddenly being threatened by someone who says they can do it faster or better, etc. Some of us are experiencing losing our place. Losing the, the place of being, you know, the, the authority in the family or losing the place of being the person with the answer in the class or the person with uh, uh, looking at retirement, such things like that. And so finding our place and holding our place, man, that's exhausting. I bet you every single one of us are tired of some aspect of that. Now, I believe there's actually a deeper problem that is going on in all of that, trying to find our place. The the, the problem is this. For most of us, unconsciously, but we are operating in this world finding our place with this. We are trying to find the reason why We belong or exist here or there in ourselves. We are trying to find the reason why I am here and belong here in ourselves. Or why I can get there and be there in ourselves. And I believe that is the source of a lot of insecurity. One of my favorite um, pastor theologians, A.W. Tozer, wrote this, and perhaps it strikes a chord with you. He says, there is hardly a man or woman who desires to be just what he or she is without doctoring up the impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like rodents within their hearts. The man of culture is haunted by the fear that he will someday come upon a man more cultured than himself. 
The learned man fears to meet a man more learned than he. The rich man sweats under the fear that his clothes or his car or his house will sometime be made to look cheap by comparison from another richer person. Put the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of friendships, the pursuit of popularity, and you get the same thing. You see, when we try to find the reason why we belong or exist in ourselves, we are in this race that Tozer describes, and I believe that we are always insecure. I believe we are insecure because that is the the very nature of being a human being. James tells us in the fourth chapter, 14 verse of his epistle, these words, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Which is to say the moment you find your place, it's almost going away the moment you have it. I think Genesis 1-1 then is such an important verse for us today in that situation because Genesis 1-1 is about establishing our place in the universe by making us very clear on one simple, unforgettable point. God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. You see, Genesis 1-1 presents to us the great divide There is God who is creator, and then there is everything else on the other side of the divide, which is creation. And we belong on the other side of the great divide. This great divide tells us this much. God, and God alone, is the reason why for everything. Now, is that good news to be told that the reason why is not in yourselves? I believe as we go through Genesis 1-1, we are going to find it is good news. Because when we find that the reason why is not in ourselves, but in God, we find the place of true meaning and peace and security and joy. We are going to explore this great divide that puts us in our place by seeing four attributes of God that are established at creation, are established right here in Genesis 1.1. Not established in the sense that they uh, came into being, but that they are clearly revealed, made known. Now, a little caveat before we start going through these four attributes. Some of the discussion today is going to fall a bit in the more detailed philosophical questions as we deal with really the big questions of life under the, the heading of cosmology, which is the, the study of why the universe is the way it is. And I apologize if some of the discussion may seem a little bit technical uh, or a little bit overly precise for your interest, but I do think that wrestling with this and working through this and engaging it with your minds will be very rewarding. Let us now look at this divide through the four attributes that we learn about God from creation in Genesis one, one. The first attribute that becomes evident is God is necessary. God is necessary. And here we are just going to handle the first four words. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 establishes something by, uh, uh, by incredible subtlety. 
telling us the beginning of everything, in the beginning, except God is already there. God just exists when everything else doesn't exist. In the beginning, God's already there. We learn just by the words, in the beginning, comma, God, that God does not have a beginning. He has everlasting life within himself. Listen to Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or listen to what Abraham called out to God when he was praying in the 21st chapter of Genesis. Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The name of God is that he is everlasting. Or Deuteronomy 33, 27, Moses teaches the Israelites this, he says, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. You see, God possesses eternity. God is everlasting. I think it is mind-boggling intentionally for the finite mind to struggle with this. God has no beginning. There was never a time when God was not. And that is the only being of which that can be said. Because as we look at this text, we are told in the beginning, everything else has a beginning. And what do we know when we have a beginning? We must deal with this fundamentally. If something begins to exist, it is by definition contingent. Meaning that if it began to exist, it is possible that it could not have existed. A beginning means it could begin just as well as it could not begin. Anything that began to exist cannot necessarily exist because there was a time when it did not exist. And necessity says you must always exist. But God, in this verse, is distinguished from everything else by having no beginning, no contingency. God exists necessarily. He must exist. Now here we get into some of the argumentation. He must exist because without him, nothing else could exist. I am telling you that sitting in your chairs right now is evidence for God. Because your chair exists, and you exist, and you all began to exist. And for you to begin to exist, something that necessarily exists has to exist. And that person we are going to find is God. Now you might be saying, really? I mean, you, you, you can't really prove the existence of God. That's faith. And I'll... I'll give you that there is a lot of faith involved in believing in God. But I do think there is a really compelling, rational argument that we can know the existence of God based on Genesis 1.1. Because here's a fundamental truth. 
If there ever was nothing, what would there be? What could there be? If ever there was only nothing, there could only ever be nothing. I'll give you a way to practice this. Go home to your kitchen, go to your oven, put nothing in it, set the timer for dinner, and then open the oven at dinner time, and what are you going to have? Nothing. Even if you set the alarm for a thousand billion years from now, if you put nothing in the oven, you're going to get nothing out of the oven because by definition, nothing can create nothing. From nothing comes nothing. All right? So, what do we do with the fact that there is something? We're all very aware that we're in the middle of a somethingness. There's something all around. You're something. I'm something. The chairs are something. The building is something. Where did the something come from? It can only come from something having existed eternally. Okay? What could that be? What, what could that be? What, what could be that, that, that eternally existing entity? Uh, it can't be the universe. Genesis 1.1 says it has a beginning. And you don't even have to go to Genesis 1.1 to know that the universe had a beginning. All of modern science is convinced that the universe had a beginning. The whole science of the Big Bang is this understanding that once everything was compressed into infinitesimally small matter, i.e. it was into absolute nothingness, and then at a moment it just existed. Science will tell you that everything has an age, at which point it's zero and it didn't exist. The Big Bang tells us nothing existed at one time. If you've enjoyed hot coffee this morning, you know that the, the uh, creation is not eternal. Because any good engineer in this room knows the second law of thermodynamics, which is that energy is going to equilibrium. Well, if there is a finite amount of energy in this closed universe that we live in, then if it were infinitely old, the energy everywhere would be the same, which would be to say your coffee can't be hotter than the room, it can't be colder than the room. How many of you guys enjoyed hot coffee this morning? Your hot coffee tells you that the universe has not yet come to an infinitely old age. It is finite in age. All right? So we know that it's not the universe that's existed forever. So something had to create the universe. What, what, what could create it? Let's think about it. it. It was created by chance. You guys heard that argument? You guys heard that the universe was created by, by just chance. Chance did this. I've seen kids named Chance. But other than that, chance doesn't actually exist. Chance is just a way to describe probabilities. I took a mathematics class on probabilities, and the answer to no equation was chance. Chance was just a description of the discovery of the probability of one thing or another. But in and of itself, chance is nothing. Now, can nothing create something? No. So chance can't be the creator because chance is, is nothing. Well, maybe, maybe some will tell you that it was self-created. The universe just created itself. 
That's like saying that the, the oven just saw the ham appear in the middle of it. Right? The whole idea of self-creation is logically impossible because here's what that says. The thing had to exist to create itself before it existed. You can't go back before you existed to create yourself. That's impossible. So we can't have chance. We can't have self-creation. I think that boils it down to it has to be something that is not part of nature. It has to be supernatural. It has to be something that is powerful, as we will talk about in a little bit. It has to be something that is personal, because it has to be something that comes from a, a will, which we will talk about. It has to be something that is timeless and eternal, that always exists. And I ask you what best fits the description of something supernatural, powerful, personal, timeless, and eternal. Let's just go ahead and call it God. God necessarily exists. And we know that because we see in the beginning God. Now somebody, if you're skeptical, may raise the question, well, yeah, 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 but what caused God? You ever heard that question? Different atheists and agnostics will say, well, who caused God? What caused God? And here we must remind ourselves of this basic truth. Nothing caused God because God is not caused. God is the cause. God has no beginning. Therefore, he does not require a cause. He is what we call in philosophy the uncaused cause. And that is a totally legitimate place, a category of thought. So here we are. If anything exists, God necessarily exists. Are you still tracking with me? We've been through the hard part already now. Is this really that clear? I mean, can it really be that clear? Can it, can it be made that stupidly simple? We want to go and get advanced degrees to say, no, no, no. You can't, you can't really know something this true. But Paul thinks so. Listen to what Paul writes In Romans chapter 1, he writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is just saying what we have just unpacked. Because creation exists, there must be a creator. And it is not something that we need the Bible to figure out because it is said that God has revealed this from the heavens. The reason it is not clear is because people have spent much time suppressing this truth by trying to explain that chance can create and things can create themselves, which is absurdity. I remember that I had a conversation with a skeptical woman who was upset that God had not made the evidence more clear. Why didn't he, she say, why didn't she, he, he put in the stars a message 
that uh, Jesus is the way to heaven. And I guess I looked at her and I said, because we would find a way to disbelieve it. We'd call it an accident. Because we already have evidence of a creator because we have a creation. What more do we need? So we see in Genesis 1-1, God is necessary. For something to exist, he necessarily exists. The second attribute that we see in this great divide is that God is complete. God is complete. Now back in the, in the old, 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 old days, back when Moses walked the earth, back in what we call the ancient Near East, all the, the countries that uh, are now Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Syria and all of that sort of stuff, the ancient Near East had, uh, had a belief in, in uh, creation, and they had, uh, they had lots of gods, and they had a belief in, in what all these gods were doing and why they existed. And the culture that Moses is writing, his divine revelation from God, was a culture that believed that the gods created human beings for help. They needed fed, they needed served, so they created human beings basically as a labor force. Genesis 1-1 rejects all of that understanding of ancient gods being uh, uh, using human beings for their needs by telling us very clearly that God is complete, needing nothing. How do we see that in this verse? Again, if there is no beginning in God... There is no dependency in God. Everything in verse 1-1 depends on God. But God exists without anything. Which means God depends on no one and no thing. We come to an incredible attribute of God here. a, a, A truth of God that it is, it is impossible, I think, for the finite mind to search it out completely. But it is this simply. God is self-existent. What uh, the theology books call it is he has aseity, which is simply this. He has the power of being entirely within himself. He doesn't need food or oxygen like we do. He doesn't need sleep and rest. He doesn't need anything to keep himself alive. His existence is within himself. As Jesus told us in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You see, he doesn't get his life from other things. It exists within. And so this entire idea that God needs human beings for anything is denied with the fourth word of Holy Scripture. Paul explained this to all of the philosophers in Athens when he was sharing the gospel with them in the 17th chapter. We read in verse 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
There is nothing lacking in God. He is complete in himself. Okay, okay, so he doesn't need food, he doesn't need oxygen, doesn't need any of those material needs. But he's lonely, right? He needs somebody, somebody to love him. He needs somebody to worship him. He's got relational needs that have to be satisfied from somewhere. So yeah, he's self-existent, but boy, is he lonely. That's why he created, right? He created us so that he would have someone to love and someone to be loved by. Is that, is that what we learn? No, because when we look very carefully, God's not alone. Look at verse 2. We are told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God reveals to us that there is a plurality in the Godhead. There is at least God and the Spirit of God. And when you go down to verse 26 of chapter 1, we see, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. There is something within the Godhead that is a community. There is a tri-personality within the Godhead. It takes us until the coming of Jesus to recognize the full dimensions of the nature of God as a trinity. But what we discover in John 1.1 are these words. God is one, but God is not lonely. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When Jesus prays in chapter 17 to his father, he says these words, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He didn't need any worship. He was receiving perfect glory from the Son, and the Father was giving perfect glory to the Son and back and forth. Or verse 24 of John 17 I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, what we must face is that God is not just self-existent and not needing any material things to keep himself going, but because God is triune, he has all the love, the fellowship, and the worship within himself. He did not create out of any, any need whatsoever. God is complete, full stop. He is perfect. He needs nothing. Now, I think this overturns a lot of our popular theology. It overturns a lot of how we think we can relate to God. Why do I say that? Because... God does not act towards us out of any necessity or dependency. This means you can't bargain with God. You can't say to God, I'll do X, Y, and Z if you'll take care of A, B, and C. God doesn't need that. That's not how God works. You can't leverage God. You can't say, I did this. I did it really, really well. I saved a bus from going off a bridge. You have to save me. You have to make me one of your own because of how good I've done or how much I've helped you. That's not how it works. God is complete in 
and of himself. You can't approach God with entitlements. I've done it. I've been better than these people. You can't give everybody judgment, and I'm certainly better than most. That's not how it works. Because God is complete. There is nothing that we can come to God that will pull his lever and say, I'll give you what you ask for. Everything that God gives is grace. There is no other way to receive from God but by him giving it graciously. I think sometimes we might come to God like thinking he might be a a Jerry Maguire type. You, you see that movie from a while ago, Jerry Maguire, and it's a beautiful scene that makes all the girls in the room cry. They broke up, and they had this terrible thing, but, but Jerry Maguire came to his senses, and he comes to the, the beautiful girl's doorstep, and she opens the door, and he says, hello. And then he rambles and rambles and rambles, and he says to her, he says, you complete me. And all the girls are like, oh, yes, that's, just, that's beautiful love. I have to break it to you. God is not like Jerry Maguire. He is not going to say to you, oh, thank you, you complete me. That's not how it works. So if that's not how it works, how does it work? How how does God act? Well, that's where we must turn to the third attribute of Genesis 1.1. God is free. I mean, totally free. And we see this in the words, God created. Now, one of the things I like about River Community Church is what a creative group we have. We have a creativity group that meets uh, twice a month on on Wednesdays, and and they just create stuff with all different kinds of mediums and uh, and tools and resources, and I always like to come and and see what they're creating. And the the group is having a wonderful time because creating is such uh, an enjoyable act because it's so free. Whatever your mind thinks of, you can, you can create. You can put it on paper or, or, or canvas. There's an act of joy in creating. But I've also noticed that uh, the group of people uh, are always creating with something. They're always living within the constraints of the paints that they came with or the, the amount of canvas that they have or whatever. So all of the things that we do that we create have, have constraints, have limitations, But when we look at the words in Genesis 1-1, God created, we recognize that creation demonstrates that God works with no constraints. He has complete freedom to do whatever he pleases. The word create is the Hebrew word uh, bara. And if you study the usage of bara in the Hebrew Old Testament, you will see that it is unique to God. No other uh, subject ever uses the word bara. It is always God, bara. There are other words for create that sometimes are used for uh, human subjects. But bara is God's word. It's a word that belongs to him alone. It is a word that teaches us that God has unlimited power and freedom to do whatever he wants to do. And nothing demonstrates the unlimited power and freedom of God than Genesis 1.1. Because what did he use to create the heavens and the earth? 
There is nothing. There's no material. God created everything out of nothing. His will determined that there would be something. When we talk about creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, we are saying that God who existed was able to create all that exists, all the material by an act of his will. He is able to create something, to bring something into existence that doesn't exist. That's his power. And that is what he has done when we look at creation. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, we are told this. Romans 4, 17. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's God's freedom. To call into existence that which does not exist. God says chair to nothing, and nothing becomes a chair. That is God's freedom to create. Although he didn't create chairs in that sense. But uh, when we talk about from nothing, I, I really, uh, nothing is not something. Nothing is the absence of anything. It means that God is able to create without matter, without energy, without time, without space. The theologian John Frame says, imagine making, say, a stone when you have nothing to make it out of and not even a place to put it. That is what it means that God created out of nothing. When we recognize that God's freedom is able to create out of nothing, we come to this conclusion. Nothing is impossible for God. Creation, everything in it, you and I, is a free act, a gracious act. It's not done because creation has to give something back to God. It is done because God had the joy of doing it. It is completely within himself why he created We see that it was for his joy because again and again he announces it's good. Just like an artist finishes their work, that's good. There's joy in creation. And so here's an important thing when we talk about the reason why. Because of this creation, value, what makes you valuable is not because of anything you do or have done, or will do. Your value is not found in who you were born from, what your job is, your bank account, the number of friends you have. Your value is in this and this alone, that you were freely and joyfully created by God. Your value Your dignity, your substance is that you were made as a free act of God. And that makes you God's masterpiece, which he looks at. The fourth attribute God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we see that in the the last uh, five words, the heavens and the earth. 
That phrase, the heavens and the earth, is a, is a Hebrew uh, uh, rhetorical device called a merism, which is to say it takes two things that are kind of opposites as a way of describing everything. So when we see the heavens and the earth, we are told that God created everything. There isn't anything that exists that God did not create. And so if God creates everything that exists, here's something true about creators, artists, movie directors, whatever. Creators own their work. Creators own their work. And whatever artists do, the purpose of their creations is is ultimately to give glory back to their creators. So when we look at Revelation 4.11, the very last book of the Bible, we are told this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of glory and honor and power from every corner of his creation because he is its creator. That means God is sovereign over all that he has made. And now let's come back to that question from the beginning. Do we know our place? When we come to this reality that God is sovereign, do we know our place? We belong to God. He's got prior claim. He's got first claim. We belong to God. We are creator. We are creation. He is creator. Consider the additional merism in this verse. It is, I would say, hidden but deeply implied. With the word beginning, What usually comes after beginning? An ending. When God creates with a beginning, there is an ending that he is also driving everything to. And our Bible takes us there. But if there is a beginning, and we know that there is an ending, we must recognize this in this creation. There is an end coming. There is an end coming. And if we are running from God right now, we are on borrowed time and we are having nowhere to hide. When Paul tells uh, the Romans that all of this creation leaves us without excuse, he means this. When judgment comes, and if you are not truly uh, loving and knowing and serving God, giving him glory, then you will be absolutely without excuse when he says, I have no more purpose for you, and sends you away. The question that the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, leaves us with is, will you be found at the end giving glory to God? Will you be found? So as we look at these four attributes We see this great divide. God alone is necessary. God alone is complete. God alone is totally free. And God alone is sovereign. This is the great divide. God is God and we are not. Genesis 1-1, if we we think about it, everything is created in Genesis 1-1. But where does all our fascination and attention go? Who is the subject of Genesis 1-1? God. Genesis 1-1 shows that God is the subject of all creation. God is the reason why 
for all existence. He is the reason why for your existence. Genesis 1-1 is good news. Why? Because in Genesis 1-1, you find your place. And what is your place? Our place is this, to know him and to make him the reason why we do all that we do. When God becomes the reason why of our life, Tozer says we step out of the world's parade. We are set free from the rat race, the insecurity, the fear of losing because we are made secure in him who can never be lost. When God becomes the reason why for our existence, our lives are filled with meaning. We have peace, which cannot be disturbed. We have security, which cannot be threatened. And we have joy that is as endless as the God who created everything. In short, this is the offer of the gospel to all who hear it and respond to it. Jesus says again in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, to know him is to put your faith in him as Lord and Savior. And to make him the purpose of your life. Have you made God the reason why for your existence? Amen.